Hey, folks. It's Tuesday Night Rheumatology. I'm Jack Cush. I'm joined by my friend Artie Cavanaugh. Hey, Artie. Hey, Jack. Okay, so this is our last in a series of Tuesday Night Rheumatologies dedicated to Room Now Live, um, a hybrid meeting held in March. And this is um, one of our, I think, more exciting sessions um, on lupus, and we call it the Lupus Mavens. We've got three speakers um, uh, who you, uh, I think you, you probably know Michelle Petrie, of course, talking about thrombotic risk. Um, Maureen McMahon from, uh, from UCLA talking about ethnic disparities. And the dermatopathologist, pretty famous uh, nationwide and well-known in Dallas, Clay Cockrell is going to talk about dermatopathology uh, and what the rheumatologist needs to know. Talks about a lot of uh, lupus mimics on that. So we'll get right into this. Uh, we do, we will take your questions in between and at the end, uh, but we're going to start off with a session from Michelle Petrie. And Michelle, uh, as you know, is from Hopkins, runs the Lupus Hopkins Center there. And she's gonna talk about thrombotic risks in patients with lupus, a really interesting talk. So hold on to your seats. You remember the criteria for antiphospholipid syndrome. There was the first major iteration it seems quite simple, doesn't it? Vascular thrombosis, pregnancy morbidity, in the setting of lupus anticoagulant or anticardiolipin, positive twice over a six-week period of time. But then you remember it was revised, and anti-beta-2 was added, and now the criteria said you had to be repeatedly positive over a three-month period of time. So I guess I'm here to tell you that these kinds of rules never seem to work in lupus. First of all, we're rheumatologists, and so we deal with a lot of the inflammatory, non-thrombotic manifestations of antiphospholipid antibodies, as you see here. And one of the most frequent that we see is, of course, this rash, livido. But this particular livido is called livido racemosa because it's so coarse and thick. It's obviously, you know, clotting, forming in larger venules. This is highly associated with later thrombotic risk. It turns out that not all the antiphospholipid antibodies are created equal, even though you would think they were based on those classification criteria. So the one that's most important, the bad actor, is the lupus anticoagulant. It's the major risk factor, not just for thrombosis, but for adverse pregnancy outcomes as well. There are three steps in confirming a lupus anticoagulant, the screening time, the mixing study, and the confirmatory step. Now it is possible to do lupus anticoagulant testing in patients who are on DOACs if the laboratory you use has set up DOAC stop. One of the problems we face, though, in lupus is that antiphospholipid antibodies fluctuate. Now, you know, you're not surprised. You know anti-DNA fluctuates, complement fluctuates. This is lupus. But if we look overall in our Hopkins cohort, antiphospholipid antibodies are quite frequent over the lifetime of the patient. But I want to show you how to interpret these tests when you get them back. So here's one of my patients who only has a confirmed lupus anticoagulant at one of these six visits. On the top line, 
you see the screening time, which is always elevated. But then you remember the next step is the mixing study. And some lupus anticoagulants correct on a one-to-one -one mix. It's much less likely, though, that a lupus anticoagulant will correct on a four-to-one mix. But only at one of these visits does the patient make it all the way through with a positive RBVT confirmed, meaning a confirmed lupus anticoagulant. Here's another example of a patient who's positive 50% of her visits. Now you're used to this format. Always has the screening time elevated. Often corrects on a one-to-one -one mix, less likely to correct on a four-to-one mix, and three different times has the confirmed test positive, so a confirmed lupus anticoagulant. Now, if you have memorized that three-month rule, you'll notice that we never would have picked this up if we based it on criteria, because even the two visits in a row where she was positive were more than three months apart. So in real life of lupus patients, it's very rare for a patient to have a lupus anticoagulant repetitively positive over three months. Here is all the data from our cohort, and you can see most patients who are positive for either high titer anticardiolipin or the lupus anticoagulant are positive less than 25% of their visits. So do we care? Well, of course we care because those patients who are intermittently positive still have an increased risk of later thrombosis. Even those who are positive less than 25% of the time have a 50% increase in their relative risk of P-value of 0.05. But once you're positive more than 25% of the visits, your relative risk is threefold increase, very statistically significant. Now, another problem with those classification criteria is that lupus patients love to make IgA antibodies. And in fact, the IgA isotypes are the most common antiphospholipid ones. Do they matter? Well, yes, they do matter. So here you see for anti-beta-2 for IgA, a 1.9 odds ratio of having a venous thrombosis that's very statistically significant. Now, it's not as much of a risk as IgG, but it certainly is a statistically significant risk. The IgM isotypes are actually included in the classification criteria. But again, it doesn't make sense for lupus because IgM anticardiolipin is not associated with thrombosis over the lifetime of the patient. You see the rate ratio stays around one. Now there are non-criteria assays for antiphospholipid antibodies, and I wanted to mention to you one that actually is useful, antiphosphatidylserine prothrombin, or anti-PSPT. It's done on serum, you don't need blood, and it is highly associated with the lupus anticoagulant. So if you have a patient where you can't correct for the warfarin, or the low molecular weight heparin, or the DOAC, you can order this. It's like a substitute for a lupus anticoagulant. But in lupus, thrombosis is not just an antiphospholipid story. Now, of course, there's some other factors we never want to forget, like if the person's nephrotic or if she's on oral contraceptive pills. But I wanted to introduce you to the field that's called immunothrombosis. Complement is involved in thrombosis. 
So no surprise, right, that our lupus patients are hypercoagulable. And there's crosstalk in both directions. So complement split products can activate platelets and start the coagulation cascades because they increase tissue factor. But it can go the other way. Plasmin can actually activate C5. Now, the importance of these complement issues has been recognized in hematology for some time. They call these complementopathies when a patient has an acquired mutation in one of the genes that regulates the complement cascade. And examples are paroxysmal nocturnal hemoglobinuria and atypical HUS. And the HELP syndrome, by the way, is just atypical HUS occurring during pregnancy. So remember that you could have mutations that work in two different directions. You could have loss of function mutations in the inhibitory genes of the complement regulatory pathways or gain of function mutations in the activating genes. And both things happen. And what's very important is that this now turns out to explain CAPS. So CAPS occurs in patients who have antiphospholipid antibodies plus have one of these acquired mutations in their complement regulatory pathways. Now, how often does this happen? These are the data presented by Dr. Chaturvedi. She works in Rob Brodsky's group at Hopkins, and they presented at the ASH meeting last year their data that show that 60% of patients with catastrophic APS have one of these complement regulatory gene mutations. This is just about the same, if not a little bit higher, than atypical hemolytic uremic syndrome. So they have figured out CAPS for us. And now you can understand why if you encounter a CAPS patient and you have access to ecolizumab, the monoclonal that blocks C5A, this would be your ideal treatment. Now what about in our lupus patients? Can we predict the risk of thrombosis? And the answer is, you know, antiphosphate antibodies alone are, are not the best. I'll show you. We always have to include, you know, any other factors the patient has. But I think where we've been missing the boat is we have not been including immunothrombosis in our risk formula. So this is what I reported way back in 2002. If a patient at the time of her diagnosis has the lupus semicoagulant, over the next 20 years, she has a 50% chance of having a venous thrombosis. I didn't even include arterial in this particular analysis. This is over 20 years. So, of course, you know, at time zero, we'd like to start her on prophylactic therapy to prevent this, but that prophylactic therapy has to be very safe because we're going to be giving it for many decades, aren't we? So, if you look at how others approach the risk of thrombosis in people with antiphospholipid antibodies, they deal mostly in primary, so they're not including a lot of lupus patients in their calculations. And this is a very catchy term, triple positivity comes from Professor Pengo in Italy. So what his group looked at was if you had all three of the criteria antiphospholipid antibodies, you're more likely to have the same confirmed three months later. And so he likes to think that triple positivity is the best way to predict who's at high risk. But it turns out that doesn't work. In lupus, we showed it didn't work because in lupus, all the risk is explained by the lupus anticoagulant. So you don't increase your risk if you have anti-cardiolipin and anti-beta-2. In the PROMISE pregnancy study, which included not just lupus patients but primary patients, 
only the lupus anticoagulant explained the risk of adverse pregnancy outcomes. Anti-cardiolipin and anti-beta-2 did not. So where should we go? Well, you could go really complicated. So here is the Japanese risk equation for thrombosis. And what they decided to do was, well, let's just measure every single antiphospholipid antibody assay there is. Now, nobody in their right mind has all these things set up in their laboratory, and we can't afford to do this in real life. So, you know, this is just an interesting approach, but not practical. You may have heard of GAPS, which stands for the Global Antiphospholipid Score. This took a different approach. By the way, they included a non-criteria assay, that anti-PSPT, but they decided to include two risk factors for arterial thrombosis. I've always thought this was strange, because in APS, usually there's just as much venous as arterial thrombosis, so why not include some risk factors for venous thrombosis, right? Like sedentary lifestyle or oral contraceptives or obesity or something. But uh, this one really isn't used widely either. So what should we do? Well, you know, I've introduced this term immunothrombosis, and now I want to let you know that platelets are also involved. Platelets are intimately involved in these coagulation and complement pathways. So when you think of immunothrombosis, I now want you to think of three different things. Lupus anticoagulant, activated platelets, and complement. Now, the first to recognize how important this was in lupus was actually the Pittsburgh group that showed that C4D, a complement split product bound to platelets, was associated with both venous and arterial thrombosis in lupus patients. You know, those are very respectable p-values. They also showed that this was true in a non-lupus stroke population as well. So even though we think of immunothrombosis in lupus, and by the way, we think of it in COVID too, it's probably true in the general population. So I want to show you what this looks like in a risk equation. But here, we're just going to start out by looking at C4D bound to platelets. Now, this is a research assay. It's not set up in your laboratory. This is to prove the point. The way this slide is oriented is any thrombosis on the left, venous thrombosis in the middle, arterial thrombosis on the right. And the different gradations are how much platelet C4D the person has. And so what you're going to see is that the more you have, the greater your risk. And yes, it does work a little bit better for venous than arterial thrombosis, but it works for both. So now we're going to put it all together. So here's the Hopkins risk equation for thrombosis, and it includes low C3, lupus anticoagulant, and the platelets bound to C4D. Same orientation, any thrombosis, venous, and arterial. And then you can see if you just have one risk factor, you know, your risk of having a thrombotic event in the last five years hasn't gone up very much. You know, and as you have two, it goes up more. And oh my God, if you have all three, you're at like 75% chance of having had a thrombotic event in the last five years. So this is quite steep, isn't it? One, two, three. You can see it does work better for venous, but it does work for arterial. It's highly statistically significant. So now let's go back to Professor Pango. Does this work better than triple positivity? And the answer is absolutely. If you have two or three, it is statistically superior. 
And here it is graphically, if you like looking at receiver operator curves. Now, how do we treat antiphospholipid antibodies? So first, let's talk about prophylactic treatment, because we're able to do this in our lupus patients, aren't we? Because we know they have the antiphospholipid antibody. We don't have to wait for something awful to happen to them. We can actually discuss prophylactic treatment. And there are four players in the prophylactic armamentarium. Well, let's start out with low-dose aspirin. You know, low-dose aspirin never had a successful clinical trial in APS. So two negative trials. But in a meta-analysis, Dr. Arnaud did show that low-dose aspirin likely has some benefit, as we would expect, right, because it would work on platelets. We have much better data for hydroxychloroquine, not, not, not a randomized clinical trial. That probably wouldn't be ethical. But you can see in the cross-sectional and longitudinal studies how use of hydroxychloroquine does reduce thrombosis risk, probably by about 50%. Now, I'm a firm believer in hydroxychloroquine blood levels. You probably already know that. And so what we have published is that your hydroxychloroquine blood level needs to be 1,000 for that patient to have that antithrombotic benefit. What about statins? Well, theoretically, these sound like a good choice because they affect the tissue factor, PAR2, and neutrophil pathways. And we know that these are the pathways that lead to neutrophil activation, which is part of the antiphospholipid pathway. Both simvastatin and pravastatin have been proven to decrease tissue factor and PAR2 expression. But what kind of clinical, non-test tube data do we have? Well, we have studies in the general population, like the JUPITER trial. Remember, that was one of the clinical trials of a powerful statin, and it did show a reduction in venous thrombosis. So we do think that this is real. But um, after hydroxychloroquine, which is my first choice for prophylactic therapy, my second favorite is vitamin D. We have so much data on vitamin D. First of all, in the test tube, it does inhibit expression of tissue factor. We know that vitamin D deficiency is increased in those with antiphospholipid syndrome and in those who actually have a thrombotic event. And outside of APS, there's even a randomized clinical trial in cancer showing that vitamin D supplementation reduces thrombosis. So I think quite powerful data. So my favorite prophylactic regimen is hydroxychloroquine and vitamin D. But what about in pregnancy? What do we do in pregnancy? Well, you remember that the favorite regimen is uh, low-dose, uh, low-molecular weight heparin and low-dose aspirin. But, you know, the clinical trials are kind of a mess. By the way, they rarely included anybody with lupus. But the difference between heparin and low-dose aspirin and low-dose aspirin alone hasn't been overwhelming. And part of the problem is they really concentrated more on early first trimester losses, which are probably less likely to be truly causally associated with antiphospholipid antibodies. But even if you do lomolecular heparin and aspirin together, you know, you only get a successful pregnancy about 75% of the time. So if we look at downstream, what happens after you have an antiphospholipid antibody, the next, one of the next steps is TNF is active. And so Ware Branch and Jane Salmon were brave enough to start this trial, the IMPACT trial, looking at an anti-TNF that doesn't cross the placenta because it's pegylated. Now, those of you who have 
really studied your anti-TNFs knowing rheumatoid arthritis, they can actually induce antiphospholipid antibodies. So, you know, do you have to be really brave to do this? Well, this is not done by itself. These patients are also going to be on heparin and low-dose aspirin. We need to have results. Now I want to turn to catastrophic APS because that's one of the most devastating things with a mortality of 50%. And triple therapy has been the rule for such a long time. So that's heparin, intravenous steroids, and plasma exchange. If you can't plasma exchange, then you give intravenous immunoglobulin. But obviously we have to do better because, you know, 50% mortality, that's awful. So, rituximab does have benefit in case series, and I've personally rescued many patients using rituximab. But as we discussed, if you can get access to it, remember how expensive it is, you would want to use ecolizumab, the anti-C5A monoclonal. What do we do after someone has had a thrombotic event? Well, warfarin is the rule. And you'll remember these two clinical trials, both of which showed that an INR of 2 to 3 is sufficient. You don't have to get an INR of 3 or higher. And if you do aim higher, of course, there's an increase in bleeding risk. So an INR of 2 to 3. But the big question has been, can we use DOACs? And the answer is no. In particular, I want to draw your attention to the two clinical trials of Pixaban and rivaroxaban, which showed that patients with APS randomized to a DOAC had an increase in arterial thrombosis, myocardial infarction, and stroke. So no, don't turn to a DOAC. So you're going to say, well, what if I can't keep the INR therapeutic? What am I to do? Well, I think my first choice would be in that patient to keep them on low molecular weight heparin every day. Now, yes, in a young woman, you might uh, have the risk of osteopenia, but you can check for that. You can do bone density scans. A DOAC would be like, you know, my bottom of the basement, last resort choice, because it's insufficient. Now, a hugely important question is, remember, the antibodies fluctuate in lupus patients. So what if the patient has had every antiphosphate antibody assay negative for a year and a half or two years or whatever? Can we stop their warfarin? Well, this case series really worried me. Look at the recurrence rate in their lupus patients in this case series. And I've personally seen disasters. So, you know, the party line is this is lifelong anticoagulation. But some patients really want to stop, or they've had a bleeding complication and you want to stop. So is there any new literature that might help you make a decision? And the answer is yes. But as with any new literature, sometimes it raises as many questions as it answers. So here's a very important study from Dr. Kieran. So this is looking at whether D-dimers might help you figure out whether it's safe to stop anticoagulation. And their view was yes in women. In men. Now, of course, this isn't a lupus study, so it's my job to tell you that in lupus, D-dimers can be up just from activity of lupus. So I thought this might be something you'd want to look at, but I'm not ready to hang my hat on it. But here's something even more important. This is from Tom Ortel. 
a hematologist who's been interested in antiphosphoantibodies for many decades. And this is a meta-analysis. It was hard for him to find enough articles of high quality in which to do the meta-analysis. And what he's doing is he's comparing treatments for venous and arterial thrombosis in terms of the recurrent thrombosis risk. And what you see, very surprisingly, is anticoagulation seems to do equally well as antiplatelet drugs. Why? That's weird, because you know we've been preaching for years. When someone has had a thrombotic event, they get warfarin. But the reason I'm bringing this up now is what if you did want to stop anticoagulation in a person who had arterial thrombosis? Well, this suggests that maybe you could start, you know, maybe double antiplatelet therapy, and you might not be losing very much. But this is not a randomized clinical trial. This is a meta-analysis. So, again, please take it with a grain of salt. I think Michelle covered a lot of ground there. Uh, a lot of um, good instruction on testing and its utility. Um, or did you find any of this surprising um, the day that she presents? She's kind of very basic in the approach, really relying strongly on a loop center coagulant um, and a lot less on triple positivity or esoteric testing, really. A couple of the notable um, things, the, the variability in the lab tests, which is now, it's really unsettling, isn't it? That you, you know, you, you check a lupus anticoagulant six times, and if it's elevated four, then, you know, if it's highly elevated on one of those four, um, really kind of a, 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 a difficult point because we like answers to be yes or no. And these uh, answers, especially the lupus anticoagulants, like the, the we have the dilute Russell viperventum, um, it's it's not always satisfying the answers that you get. But the other is the role of the hypocomplementemia, which is interesting. We think of complement being involved with uh, swelling, for example, in our lupus patients who have angioedema, and that's of course complement driven. But the clotting makes sense that there's bidirectional talk, and we know that complement like most bodily systems has uh, it's chaotic. It has cascades of interaction and stimulation and inhibition and interacts with the other systems like the clotting and uh, anticoagulation system. So, uh, but it's something more to think about with our uh, patients who, who happen to have persistent hypercomplementemia. Do you think uh, it's clear to you where eculizumab, uh, the C5A inhibitor would fit in? Like um, what scenario? In, peop, in uh, uh, lupus patients who just won the lottery, I think it'd be a, a, a good indication. Uh, when we, uh, the, in, in our hospital, the renal people are, are uh, there and the hematologists have uh, been leading with using that. And when they get it approved, they get two doses approved at a time and that's it. Um, then you have to go for reapproval and, and justify. So uh, it'd be nice. And there's certainly, there's some other complement inhibitors uh, coming. Um, you know, might this be a place where you have something like a Vacaban, which uh, will no doubt be expensive, but maybe less expensive and, and maybe other future therapies if complement is such a good target. And it, it seems like it is. And it seems like for those patients in extremists, it can be really life-saving. Okay. All right. So our next speaker is uh, Maureen McMahon from UCLA. We asked Maureen to talk about ethnic disparities in lupus. And as you know, I'm going to give you just a snippet. The full lecture is online, both on Room Now and also on um, our YouTube channel. So let's look at what Maureen has to say. 
So we know from recent data that the overall incidence of lupus in the United States is anywhere from 4.6 to 5.6 per 100,000 people. Of course, lupus is much more heavily favored uh, in females with a ratio of about 9 to 1 females to males. And when you look at patients of black and Hispanic descent, you can see that those patients often present at an earlier age. Uh, the overall incidence and prevalence, as we'll discuss, is much higher in those patients. And in addition, those patients also have more severe disease and more long-term complications. So here we have some of the most updated, updated data that we have regarding the prevalence of lupus in the United States. And this is a meta-analysis of data from four different CDC-funded registries, uh, the Georgia, New York, California, and Michigan registries. And you can see overall that when you look at the overall prevalence of lupus in the United States, it's about 128 uh, patients per 100,000 persons. Um, now, when you look uh, and compare that in Hispanic patients, the incidence is about 120 per 100,000 people. But in black, in black patients, it's about 230 per 100,000 persons. Uh, now, in a separate registry that was not included in the meta-analysis because the, the methodology was a little bit different, you can see that the overall prevalence among American Indian and Native Alaskan peoples is about 270 per 100,000 persons in the U.S. Now, this is data that we uh, included here just to kind of give you a flavor for the overall incidence and prevalence of lupus by country. Um, you can see uh, that the overall incidence is highest in Brazil, followed by the U.S., uh, and the prevalence uh, is highest in Puerto Rico, again, followed by uh, different U.S. Uh, cohorts. Uh, whereas when you get down to Eastern European cohorts, uh, the incidence and prevalence are much lower. So you can also see uh, that the prevalence of different disease manifestations is higher uh, among patients of different racial and ethnic backgrounds. This is data that was compiled by one of our current UCLA fellows when he was working in San Francisco. And you can see overall when you look at renal manifestations, uh, those are significantly higher in uh, patients of non-Hispanic black descent, uh, also Hispanic descent, and Asian or Pacific Island descent. In addition, uh, black patients have higher uh, disease prevalence of musculoskeletal manifestations, neurologic manifestations, and hematologic manifestations. Now, what about survival in lupus? Uh, we know certainly that we're doing better at treating our lupus patients and having uh, improved survival uh, when you compare how we were doing in the 1990s, for instance, to how we had been doing back in the 1950s. However, when you look at more recent years, uh, you can see that survival has more or less leveled off um, and still does not achieve that by the non-lupus population. So certainly we have a way to go and we need to find uh, better treatments for our patients so that we can improve overall survival. So we'll start with our first polling question. Um, what factors may contribute to increased mortality in lupus? A, black race. B, early lupus-related damage, C, Asian race, D, end-stage renal disease, E, all of the above, or F, A, B, and D. So it looks, so it looks like the overwhelming answer at this point 
is E, all of the above, 83%. Moment to answer. Okay, and as you'll see as we continue talking, the correct answer would be all of the above. So what do we know about mortality specifically among different patients of racial and ethnic backgrounds? Uh, here's some interesting data from the Lumina cohort, uh, which is comprised of patients uh, from the United States and Latin America. And here I think is an interesting example that we really can't lump patients together uh, in big ethnic groups uh, as we may have been doing traditionally. So you can see here uh, that survival is actually highest in patients of Puerto Rican Hispanic descent, uh, whereas survival was lowest in patients of Texan Hispanic descent uh, and of black uh, racial background. Now, we have other data that demonstrates that mortality is highest in black patients. Uh, this is data from the Georgia Lupus Registry. Uh, and here you can see that uh, mortality, both in patients who are followed uh, from the start of their disease or in incident lupus cases uh, and in prevalent lupus cases, that mortality was highest in black patients compared to Caucasian patients. And I think one of the interesting things from this study is that you can see that those mortality differences start to appear even in the early years of diagnosis. Uh, now, this is data from the California Epidemiology Study, uh, which also included a, a higher number of Asian patients. And you can see here that, again, there is increased mortality overall in lupus patients uh, with a, a threefold increased standard mortality ratio. But when you look at patients, uh, especially female patients who are of Asian descent, those patients had a fourfold increased mortality ratio, and patients of Hispanic and Latina descent had almost a sixfold increased ratio. Now, when you look at the data overall, black patients with lupus tended to die 6.8 years earlier than Caucasian patients, and Hispanic lupus patients died 9.5 years earlier than Caucasians. Now, again, in addition to what we know about the impacts of race and ethnicity on mortality, uh, we know that patients who are of low socioeconomic status do worse than patients in higher socioeconomic status. And in addition, uh, certain disease manifestations, and in particular nephritis, can have a big impact on mortality. Here you can see that when you look at any lupus patients that go on to have any type of renal damage, those patients have 14-fold increased risk of premature death. And when you look at patients who have end-stage renal disease, those patients go on to have a six, over a 60-fold increased risk of premature death. Now, we know that even with all of our newer treatments, almost 20% of lupus patients who develop nephritis go on to have end-stage renal disease. So again, this is something that has a big impact on the increased mortality that we see in our patients. Now, what are some other things that may, that may impact mortality? Well, we know that when patients develop damage from their lupus, 
in addition, not just renal damage, but other types of damage, they are certainly at a higher risk of having mortality overall. And you can see in this study that when patients develop that damage within the first year of diagnosis, 25% uh, of those patients with that early damage died within 10 years compared to about 7% who did not develop damage early on. So again, the earlier you start to accumulate damage, the worse the overall prognosis is. And you can see, I think, although most of us think we're doing a pretty good job of taking care of our lupus patients, when you really look at the data, you can see that within one year, about 10% of patients develop permanent organ damage. But by the time you reach five years, that's anywhere from a third to half of patients have permanent organ damage. And as time goes on, those numbers accumulate till you reach almost 100% of patients with some form of permanent damage. So again, I think this also highlights the need to really find more effective treatments for our patients. Now, what about the impact of race and ethnicity on development of damage? Well, here you can see uh, from this study that patients who have, again, lower overall household incomes are certainly more likely to develop damage. But even after you take that and age and other demographic factors into account, you can see that African-American patients had significantly higher odds of developing damage. Uh, and when you look at patients who accumulated damage in more than two areas, uh, African-American patients had a six-fold increase odds for accumulating damage. Now, what other types, types of things can contribute to risk of damage? Well, we certainly know that the more active the patient is, the more likely they are to accumulate damage over time. But interestingly, if you look at the relationship of disease activity and damage, you can see that although we usually do a better job of getting control of disease activity over the first year uh, in the panel on the left, in those same patients that you can see in the panel on the right, even though disease activity has improved, damage continues to accumulate. So certainly this may reflect some ongoing disease activity that we're not picking up in our activity uh, measures that we currently use. But I think a large contributor to, the, to this is also corticosteroids. Now, even as perhaps our daily prednisone doses go down over time, uh, the cumulative prednisone doses, when you look over time, uh, do certainly uh, increase. And that rate of increase often mirrors the rate Sumanzi's data that patients who are uh, in the 35 to 44 year old age group can have up to a 50 fold increased risk uh, compared to their age match counterparts. We do have some data looking at the impact of race and ethnicity on cardiovascular disease and lupus. Uh, this is data looking at patients uh, from the Medicaid database. Uh, and what was found is that patients who are overall of black descent have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, when you look a little more specifically at MI, patients who are of Hispanic descent seem to have a little bit lower risk. Uh, but when you look at strokes, patients of black and Hispanic risk both had increased risk.
Now, when we think about uh, things such as uh, skin-limited disease, uh, that Initially, you know, we may think that those patients have uh, overall um, not as much risk as patients who have major organ involvement. Uh, but I think it's important to remember um, that African-American patients are much more likely to develop damage when they have skin involvement. And that permanent damage and scarring can have a, a very significant impact on quality of life. Uh, in addition, we know from work done by Megan Klaus, looking at her patients in the Carolinas, uh, that patients uh, who are of Black and Hispanic descent are also at increased risk for pregnancy complications. So that can include obstetric complications, um, where Black and Hispanic patients uh, had a much higher rate of, of uh, both multiple different obstet obstetrical complications and also medical complications during pregnancy. And in particular, when you look at risk of acute renal failure during pregnancy. Uh, the odds even adjusted for uh, different lupus risk factors and socioeconomic factors. Uh, black patients had almost a 3.6-fold increase odds for having acute renal failure during pregnancy. And Hispanic patients had over an 11-fold increase odds compared to Caucasian patients. Uh, so this is included in some of your pre-reading material, um, so we won't go over it in great detail here, but I do think it's a, a nice review of all the different uh, socioeconomic and environmental exposures that can contribute to health disparities in our patients. So what are some of the additional things that can contribute to the health, health disparities we see in our patients? I think uh, one of the things that comes up uh, frequently uh, as a thought as to one of the things that might contribute to uh, racial and ethnic uh, disparities is that there could be uh, differences in adherence patterns. And this is some data uh, that supports that to a certain extent. Uh, this is data looking at patients in the Medicaid database. And you can see uh, that when you look at adherence to azathioprine, for instance, uh, patients of Afri African American descent and Hispanic patients uh, were much more likely to be in the non-adherent group of patients. However, that was not consistent uh, when you looked at adherence to mycophenolate. Uh, I think the most significant thing to me when I looked at this data was that overall, only 21% of lupus patients uh, in this database had good adherence to lupus medications. So again, I think that adherence to medications is a major issue in all of our patients uh, and something that we need to work on um, with better strategies and, uh, and better patient-doctor uh, uh, communication. So a lot of meaty stuff there. I mean, clearly... Um, the ethnic and racial disparities issue is a big driver of the lupus that scares us. And But what I'm not getting from this, Artie, is what's the intervention? Where do we go with this? Is it, is it enough just to be overly concerned about this population? Or do we? what are we going to work on? It's not just adherence, as she points out. Adherence is low in lupus across the board. Um, do you, did you take any anything away from her lecture at, at Room Now Live that helps you know how to better tackle this issue? Well, one thing I think is the, the differences in the comorbidities. I mean, remember one of the things that we've known forever, uh, for certainly for renal lupus survival, is that the most important factor is hypertension. 
And that's more important than double-stranded DNA and biopsy and complement and anything else. It's, it's hypertension. And that is different in different populations. And that is not only something that's important, but it's something that's reversible. So it's, it's addressable. Um, differences in how people may respond to mycophenolate. Uh, I don't think we know enough about it to, to make great decisions in an individual person in the clinic ahead of us, but we got a lot of choices for hypertension. And I think that's something that uh, because the comorbidities are so important, I think that's something that can be done. I think rheumatologists are are certainly keyed into the whole issue of comorbidity. It, it, it plays a gigantic role in RA, in SPA, in PSA, and basically everything we manage. And rheumatologists are more keen to identify this and start treatment, get the the other specialists or primary care involved in that. But it it certainly is a, a big player in all our diseases and. And it could be, you know, the, the one modifiable thing, at least in this lupus population, because you really can't change your genes. Um, access and behaviors are, um, are maybe in there somewhere, but it's not clearly well spelled out. What did you make of the, the, the fact that we're number two in the frequency of, um, of lupus worldwide in different populations? You know, America and then the U.S., Puerto Rico, we're really high on the list of the frequency and the, the incidence of lupus. Is that a, an indictment of lifestyle? No, well, that, I mean, it could be multiple factors, but accrual bias could be uh, some part of it as well. Um, the more you look for something, the more you're going to find it, particularly something where you have a variety of criteria, some of which are subjective, that will get you the diagnosis. Um that yeah, so I think that some of it may be related to to that. If you if you ask questions, you're going to find some answers and find people who are serologically positive, and then say, well, yeah, but I, and I have this and I have that, and then you know they can they really qualify for the diagnosis. I think that may be some of it acquisition bias. Yeah, I mean the fact that half of our business are A and A positive consults sort of speaks to that that whole issue, does it not? All right, so we have one more session. This is Dr. Clay Cockrell talking about um, what, how he approaches our diseases. He's a dermatopathologist, actually sees patients as a dermatologist. He's a fair number of my patients. Um, uh, useful, we've asked him to talk about um, things that rheumatologists need to know and then how um, uh, some of the mimics of lupus, I think he's going to cover in this abbreviated snippet from his session. I'm sorry for some of the some of these slides do come off fuzzy, you know, and I think that's a matter of taking um, the technology, the recording, and then making a recording of the recording and whatnot. And probably the slides are too busy in the first place. So some of these slides are fuzzy. We're sorry to say, but um, the words may be more important, maybe more important than the slide. So I'm glad you say that, Jack. I, I thought I was having a TIA or something. So I'm glad it's the. We're going to check the lupus anticoagulant while on Artie while we go into our third session. If you're looking at ALE, neonatal ALE, these are all kind of similar uh, clinically. They're similar histologically. They all kind of look, if you look at the actual eruption, they all look kind of the same. Drug-induced SCLE, again, some of the specific drugs we said a lot of times really with hydrochlorothiazide, that's probably the most common. They often tend to give you a lichenoid pattern. It's photo-exaggerated. We'll kind of show you that in a minute. So here's the so-called rash of acute 
lupus erythematosus, okay? It's an erythematous eruption. Sometimes it's macular, slightly scaly. The woman on the right, uh, basically she's got a, a lot of crusting and probably maybe even has some erosions and vesicles. And notice the sparing of the nasolabial fold. That's a key feature that we see in acute lupus. You don't see that in rosacea. It's almost always involved there. So if you want to be a better dermatologist, you look at that. And this is a photo dis distribution. So where the sunlight shines. Now, it doesn't always obey that, you know, because some people take their shirts off or maybe there's light just through their thin uh, clothing, that sort of thing. But this is a classic distribution of what we call a photodistributed eruption. This is annular subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus. Now, if you, if you saw this, there's, like, there's a number of other things in, in the differential diagnosis of this eruption here. But certainly, this is what annular SCLA looks like. And it can also give you a psoriasiform morphology. Notice I'm not calling these rashes, OK? I'm calling them annular scaly plaques with central clearing or diffuse annular or diffuse, uh, psoriasiform lesions, as you see here. And then neonatal lupus. We all know the transmission of the antibody across the placenta causes the eruption in, in children, and they can get a heart block. I'm not a, a cardiologist, but that's obviously those uh, QRS waves and, and the P waves. They don't, they don't match up there. So there's, there can be complete heart block, several different degrees of heart block. Now, this is a histology of QLE. So, well, gosh, these people look red, they look angry, they got a lot of scale. It's the same thing in SCLE and NNLE, it all looks the same. Usually a pretty sparse infiltrate of lymphocytes with some thinning of the base membrane, with thinning of the epidermis, with some slight vacuolar rights at the dermatural junction. Pretty subtle. And a drug rash can look like this. I said the word rash, so for, to keep you guys awake on your, on your toes there, a drug eruption can look similar to this. Uh, it doesn't have to have any eosinophil. So if you just look at this alone without any clinical information, without any photographs or anything like that, you're probably not going to make a definitive diagnosis of lupus. They might say, well, you can do immunofluorescence, right? That's going to help you. Well, immunofluorescence is kind of like somebody that's overboard and somebody's tossing him a life preserver. It's not the number one way of making the diagnosis of lupus. That's another take-home message. Please remember that. And we get these biopsies for lupus band tests all the time. A lot of times you guys tell the dermatologist to do it. It's a lousy test, okay? On a scale of 1 to 10, it's about a 1. I'd much rather see this, the serology of the patient. Because we see uh, patients that have known lupus, they biopsy of some protected area, and it's totally negative with immunofluorescence. They may have an ANA of 1 to, to 320 or something like that. So don't rely on that. In fact, I would just recommend flushing that out of your, your uh, repertoire. Uh, Jeff Callen says he never orders it anymore. So I would recommend not doing it. And usually, if it's positive, it's so obvious that they have lupus, it's sort of confirmatory that you know, anybody could diagnose it. So it's really not a very good test. I, I, I don't like it, and I don't really, really recommend it. Now, if you do get a positive fluorescence, this is what it looks like. You get deposits that are usually this diffuse coarse granular deposition at the, at the dermatological junction. It's usually IgG, C3, A, and M. We like to see all of those. The problem is somebody comes in with rosacea on sun-damaged skin. Somebody takes a biopsy, and it's a weekly positive IgG only, and maybe they got 1 to 40, and they've got the malar, quote, rash, and they get branded with lupus, and they do, and they live with that for years. They almost carry it around like a trophy. Hey, I've, I've got lupus, you know, and, and it's not a good thing necessarily. Now, discoid LE, you guys probably see a lot of this also. These are usually mostly the patients that we treat. They, they don't have the nephritis. They don't have the kind of stuff of the, the thrombotic processes that the two previous speakers spoke about. This is a skin mainly, mainly disease. Rarely, rarely uh, do these people develop uh, you know, uh, acute LE or subacute LE or anything like that. Sometimes, but, but it's rare. And these are the clinical manifestations. You see there's these scaly uh, psoriasiform lesions. They get atrophy. They get dispigmentation. They get poikiloderma. They get alopecia. Uh, very characteristically get that, that uh, follicular plugging you see on that lady's nose there. The ear 
years, a very common site of involvement. So when you see this, I'd like you to think about discoid lupus. It's an alopecia. This is commonly involves the scalp, and it's a permanent chronic scarring alopecia. Once they get it, it, it never comes back. If you look out of the microscope, it's got a very characteristic histology. It's much more inflamed than acute LE or subacute LE. It's got a superficial, deep infiltrate of lymphocytes. It's got the epidermal changes that we see. May have interstitial mucin. Uh, again, this is this often has a positive uh, uh, immunofluorescence study, but you don't need it. You can tell with clinical and histology. I mean, I, I don't think you would ever need an immunofluorescence study, and it can be sometimes confounding. It can be confusing. You do a biopsy for immunofluorescence, it comes back as negative, but the patient's like screaming discoid LE. So I, I don't really recommend doing direct immuno for this in most cases. So here you see the, the pattern. Uh, these are lymphocytes, those little dark black things you see there. I know you guys probably don't look at a lot of histology slides, but this is what we see under the microscope. It's really classic. Uh, this is the perifollicular involvement, and this is the thickened basal membrane zone with the thinned epidermis. So that's really classic for discoid lupus erythematosus. We'd make this diagnosis just right and then move on to the next case. So we don't really spend too much time on that. It's easy. Now, where can it be hard? Now, this is kind of an important situation. Now, this may or may not really affect you guys, but I'd like you to at least think about it. So you at least have in the back of your mind, because this could happen at some point to you. Verrucous lupus erythematosus, which can simulate actinic keratosis and squamous cell carcinoma. And there's kind of a famous case. Uh, Dr. Cush remembers uh, Dr. Freeman years ago, who's one of my former associate, uh, passed away a number of years ago. He had a case years ago that was uh, a woman that had discoid lupus that was signed out of squamous cell carcinoma in her nose, 20-some-odd-year-old woman. They did a plastic surgical removal of it, and of course it all came back and melted down, and she had this horrible deforming effect because it was misdiagnosed as a cancer. And she actually, they got a lawsuit, she actually defended herself, which was stupid because she didn't win any money on that, but she was really horribly deformed because of the diagnosis it was missed. So you need to remember this, this thing. So, and you can see these can kind of look similar to one of this is This is lupus. Now, if I just showed you that picture on the right, and I said, could that be a skin cancer? The answer would be yes. Here's an actinic keratosis on the right, the guy's ear. Okay, people get lupus, get it in the ear. So it can look kind of similar. I've made this diagnosis, I've missed the diagnosis myself before. I uh, remember seeing a woman a number of years ago that came with a, with a scaly crusted thing on her, uh, on her uh, mandible, and I took a shave biopsy of it, and it looked like an actinic keratosis, and we treated it with liquid nitrogen, it came back, we took a punch biopsy, and lo and behold, it was, was discoid LE. And this is why. If you do a shave biopsy, you can see this epithelial hyperplasia. It's got a lymphocytic infiltrate, but we don't know how deep it goes because it's a shave biopsy. Again, it's just a little side typicality of the, corner of the uh, base of the epidermis there. This is another area. Slight looks pretty similar. Uh, but notice that there's a little thickening of the basal membrane zone. There's not as much atypia, but there's a little bit of squamatization of the basal cell layer, which are features of, of possible cancer. Here's some thick basal membrane zone. So just look at these. Do you think you could reliably tell that the left being squamous cell carcinoma and the right being uh, verrucous lupus? No. So remember this. If it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't respond to therapy, doesn't work, consider another biopsy by punch technique. Make sure that you're not missing this and don't just kind of leave it, uh, you know, without uh, further uh, workup. Now, Tuminelli, I don't know how many of you have heard of this diagnosis. Basically, this is where you have a superficial and deep infiltrate of lymphocytes. It gives you a non-scaly erythematous plaque, usually, often on sun-damaged skin, with minimal, if any, uh, change in the epidermis. So these people come in looking like this. They don't have follicular plugging. They don't have the atrophy. Uh, here's another example. Notice that nice photodistributed area, the V of the chest. And when you biopsy this, it gives you this lymphocytic infiltrate with minimal, if any, interface change. 
So this is also a form of lupus. These people may have a, a positive ANA. They, they may not. Uh, you put these people on Plaquenil, this just melts away. It does beautifully with this. And they get mucin between the collagen bundles, which you can see right in this photograph here. And one of the other diseases that's kind of similar to this, we think, is probably reticular erythematous mucinosis. I don't know if you guys have heard of that, but it basically looks pretty similar to this uh, clinically and histologically. Now, sometimes lupus can get bullous, uh, and when it does, these people are usually pretty sick. They're usually people that have known diagnosis of lupus, maybe they're on steroids or something like that, and they say, well, I'm going to go off my steroids and go to the beach or something like that, and they get a horrible flare. And you probably have heard of Rowell syndrome, which is kind of a combination of erythema deformity and lupus erythematosus. So these, these people are really, really sick. They may involve the mucous membranes in some cases. So here you see some examples of these people. It's a beautiful example of that woman on the, on the bottom there that's got a nice photodistributed eruption there, and she probably did go to the beach or something like that. The guy on the top has got some involvement in his mucous membranes, which we see sometimes in lupus. And this is one of the diseases where you get a subepidermal blister with neutrophils. Okay, it's kind of like dermatitis herpetiformis and linear IJ bullous dermatosis. So here you see the blister, and it's loaded with polys. Now, you may see some lymphocytes beneath it, so there may be some sort of other lupus-like findings. But if you just saw this pattern here, we wouldn't just definitively diagnose this as bullous lupus unless we had good clinical correlation, because there's several other diseases that can give you epidermal blisters with neutrophils, and this is probably one of the most serious ones, because these people are usually quite ill when they get this. And these people usually do have some positive uh, immunoreactants. Uh, they have antibodies to type 7 collagen, either the serum or the base membrane zone. So here's an example, again, of what uh, the uh, direct immunofluorescence of lupus would look like if it's positive. Now, sometimes lupus can give you a paniculitis. It's the most common paniculitis of the upper part of the body, especially in young people. Okay, so that's just a pearl if you want to remember that. It's not that common. It's seen you know, in 1% to 3% of patients, and it may be associated with systemic lupus. It may give you some uh, overlying changes of LE in the epidermis, and it may give you some positive ANA titers. These are some examples. If you feel these lesions, they feel like wood. They feel really, really sclerotic, very, very, very firm, much firmer than any other form of paniculitis, more than erythematosum or, or any infectious paniculitis. And here you see the inflammation is, is situated mostly in the lower dermis. There's a little bit of uh, superficial lymphocytic infiltrating in the upper dermis, but the key to this diagnosis is this mummified, degenerated fat that basically just looks like it's replaced with fibrin. Okay, with lymphocytes and plasma cells in the infiltrate. So there you see the lymphocytes and plasma cells. And here's the mummified sclerotic fat. It looks kind of like this mummy here to make you so you remember that. So when you see lupus paniculitis, it's dense sclerotic fat. Um, it's classic for the diagnosis. And you, and you have to take a deep biopsy to get that. Uh, if you look overlying that, you'll often see some changes of discoid lupus in the epidermis, like the thin epidermis uh, with the thick base of membrane zone. So there's an important pitfall here just to remember. Now, I don't expect you to become a lymphoma expert here either, but there is one item that you may encounter in the differential diagnosis at some point is this subcutaneous paniculitis-like T-cell lymphoma that sometimes can look like lupus clinically and sometimes can look like it histologically. Um, it has a pretty good prognosis, about 80% over five years, but it can actually be more aggressive. It's got an alpha-beta phenotype, and uh, these, this is kind of what the lesions look like. So the guy on the left says, hmm, that's got some of these reddish nodules without any involvement of the epidermis. Maybe it could be a form of lupus. Uh, the lady on the right, you know, it looks like a paniculitis. It's on her leg. It's not on her lower extremities, in the lower part of her leg, like erythematosus. So maybe that could be lupus paniculitis. And you take a biopsy, it shows this lobular paniculitis with lots of lymphocytes and some plasma cells in there. But it, it usually gives you these beanbag-looking lymphocytes that acquire the ability to phagocytose other lymphocytes. And, and they get these small uh, breakdown products of lymphocytes in their cytoplasm. And in my experience, even though this is talked about in the literature as being a simulator of lupus profundus, um, it usually is not because they don't get that mummified fat.
Okay. Now I want to be the bearer of bad news for you guys, sadly enough. This is not going to come as, as very uh, uh, comforting for you, unfortunately. You cannot use histology and direct IF to distinguish lupus and dermatomyositis. I wish we could. We get biopsies from you guys all the time. Tell me, is it lupus or dermatomyositis? And I have to say, no, I can't tell you. And here's why. So here's what it looks like under the microscope. A very sparse infiltrate. There's minimal change here. Maybe there's a little bit of smudging of the dermatoidal junction. Here's another example. It shows basically the same thing with a few more lymphocytes. One's dermatomyositis. One's lupus. You want to take any bets as to which one it is? I mean, we could flip coins and probably do just as well as me actually giving you the answer. So these look the same. So histology and immunofluorescence, not the way to make the diagnosis here. The good news is if you use your clinical skills and correlate cl clinical findings with histology, you usually can distinguish the two. Uh, and this is one where serology does help you, obviously, because you get all these wonderful antibodies you guys have figured out now. And uh, they both can be photosensitive, but lupus is usually more photosensitive than dermatomyositis. Uh, but the direct immunofluorescence in lupus, just like I said before, can be negative sometimes. If it's positive, it's great. But if it's negative, I'm sorry, it just doesn't help you. They can still have lupus. And dermatomyositis, it usually is negative. So I don't, I don't even like to do immunofluorescence for patients that have dermatomyositis. So here's the fact um, that completes this um, session of uh, Room Now Live devoted to uh, lupus uh, and a lot of different facets of lupus. I think all kind of exciting. Um, Artie, any, uh, any takeaways from you as far as, uh, as a session? Well, um, I was, you, you, I don't think you had the part about from Clay where he said we're not supposed to use the word rash. Yeah, um, but he didn't say what you're supposed to say. What do you, what do you call it? Uh, the lesion or the maculopapular, thing? annular, papulosquamous, you know, you usually use those multi-syllable, um, you know, uh, hard to spell, somewhat descriptive, uh, almost diagnostic terms, whereas, again, if you listen to his lecture uh, twice in this segment that we showed you, he used the word rash. <laughs> and he, didn't, he didn't have the three, remember the three rules of dermatology, I think they're still the same. If it's dry, wet it. If it's wet, dry it. And if you don't know what it is, don't touch it. Uh, you know, it applies to so much of life, and especially COVID life. So, um all right, so that's it. We want to um, thank all of you for viewing the last six weeks or seven weeks of the session. Um, uh, we're going to do it again next year. Uh, starting tomorrow, ULAR. Artie and I are going to be covering ULAR. Uh, you'll be seeing a lot of content coming forward on uh, Room Now, uh, and you'll be able to enjoy that. Um, look for different you know, videos, podcasts. Uh, we, we have topic pages. We have on-topic pages, ways that you can cone down to what we call a PDQ view, where you can get an even uh, more narrow view. If you don't have a lot of time over lunch and you want to see what's going on at ULAR, please, uh, I think you're going to see a lot of interesting content. So far, what we've seen looks challenging, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to cover it. Um, uh, Artie, any uh, preview for, from you for ULAR? Well, I'd just like to thank the audience and also say if you have ideas for Room Now Live 2022. Um, you know, things you thought of, including this series of Tuesday night uh, programs, ideas, comments, all very welcome. Yeah, again. Um, all right. So no questions. We're going to adjourn for the evening and we'll see you next week um, with our coverage of ULAR. Good night, everyone. Thank you.
Thanks, Artie. Good night, folks. Thanks, Jack.